What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Brews on the Balcony midweek show. Another week, and it's getting down to the nitty-gritty. We only have three more games of football left. College just wrapped up on Monday. We have Championship Sunday and Super Bowl Sunday, and then we're done until next August. Can you believe that? That is going to suck, but we have a loaded show today. I was actually hyped to get home and record this because we have some great topics. I have some great stuff to talk about. I want to, of course, recap the two playoff games on Sunday, the Chiefs and the Texans, and then the the Packers and the Seahawks. I want to talk a little bit about analytics because I think that we may be jumping the shark a little bit or at least uh, are coming dangerously close. And I want to also talk about the Kevin Stefanski hire uh, for the Browns. They hire the OC of the Minnesota Vikings before we preview the championships the NFC Championship and the AFC Championship. But before we do all that, i got to give a shout-out to our fantastic sponsors. First up, Cafe Telegraph. They hosted the BOTB live football show every Sunday morning from 10.30 to noon. Cafe Telegraph is an outstanding location to take in a football game or just take your family out, out for uh, a night out. Fairly priced, huge portions. Uh, everything's cooked uh, pretty much, the, at least the meats, all, all cooked to order. Uh, best smoked meats in town. Go head on out to Cafe T in South County uh, on Telegraph Road to uh, enjoy some smoked meats, enjoy some cold beer, and enjoy some football if, if that's if that's your prerogative, which if you're listening to this show, it definitely is. Uh, we're also brought to you by Kay Roberts from REMAX Gold, one of the best real estate agents in the city of St. Louis. Give Kay Roberts a call. Uh, I had just finished moving TJ into his new house. I've been able to go over there the last couple of weekends for uh, our, our shows that have been recorded in the playoffs, not at Cafe T, and uh, she did really good. The house is beautiful, great, great yard space. It, it is it is an A1 uh, starter home. You wouldn't think it would be a starter home. I mean, when you look at it, that that thing is pretty sweet. Got him a sick deal on that, so give Kay Roberts a call. Uh, we're also brought to you by STL Distillery, Nick's Boys in, uh, in St. Charles on Freedon's Road. You can try their Brew Vodka, B-R-U, distilled from craft beer, or try their Cardinal Sin Vodka. And lastly, we're brought to you by Family Finance Mortgage and Sarah Barron. Sarah Barron, you can give her a call at 314-537-1282 to refi on your mortgage or get one started. Again, Sarah Barron, 314-537-1282. That's Family Finance Mortgage. Let's get into the podcast. Well, first off, we got to talk about the Sunday games. And the first Sunday game was an NFL first. In NFL history, it was the first time a team had ever gone down by 24 points to come back and lead the game at halftime. I got some thoughts on that. And then, of course, the Packers-Seahawks game. My Packers prevail in the divisional round at home in Lambeau, and now they face the 49ers, who look like an absolute wagon. They'll have their work cut out for them in Santa Clara this weekend. But first, got to talk about the Chiefs and the Texans. And the Chiefs come out looking flat yet again in a playoff game, which uh, that's kind of been the narrative for Andy Reid, right or wrong. I don't think it's fair, but that's that's been the criticism of him, is that they have kind of choked in the playoffs and on home field at times. In fact, they're going to have a rematch of one of those games they lost at home a couple of seasons ago against Marcus Mariota's Titans at the time. Uh, But in this one, it was defined by everything going right for the Texans and everything going wrong for the Chiefs in the early going. And I think the game flipped on one call. And it was when Bill O'Brien, up 21-0 at the time, had already gotten a blocked punt return for a touchdown, marched it right down the field uh, to start the game off to get a touchdown. And then I can't remember how they got their third touchdown, but, uh, oh, I believe it was the Tyreek Hill muffed punt, which they then converted to six. So he's then going for the knockout punch. I mean, he has the ball, I think it was close, if not already in the red zone, and Bill O'Brien decides to kick the field goal. And they do make the field goal to go up 24-0, but I believe it was fourth and short. I don't know if it was fourth and one. I want to say it was fourth and one, but it might have been fourth and three or fourth and five or whatever. And I was thinking, you got to go for this. And I think everybody was thinking you had to go for it. And he decides not to, and he decides to kick the field goal, which... In the second half, or if, if there's more time in this game, you absolutely do. I defend the, the call more 
if the situation of the game is different because if you kick that field goal, you're basically making the game another possession because you're already up three touchdowns. So the theory is you convert it into a four-possession game unless they convert three two-point conversions in a row. Then they could get they can make up those three points that way. So my issue with it was they were they were likely to pick up the first down, especially when you have a quarterback that can run, that can pass the ball as well. You're at a down and distance to where you can literally do anything. You can run a zone read. You can have Deshaun Watson drop back and rhythm pass. You can take a shot down the field. You have the defense at your will, and not to mention this is a Chiefs defense that had been reeling up to this point. I mean, the crowd has gone silent. They are totally out of it right now. You have everybody in that stadium completely dumbfounded as to what they're witnessing happen to their team that they thought had a good shot to get to the Super Bowl. And so you kick the field goal, you go up 24-0, fine, whatever. But it felt like the second you kicked that field goal, it was like, "Eh, I don't know. I don't know. And I didn't think they'd come back that fast. But even when they went up 24-0... Uh, and the Chiefs got the ball back and scored that first touchdown. After they scored, I had a feeling they were going to score anyways after the field goal. Because that's just, I mean, you watch enough football, it doesn't take a, it's not rocket science. You're like, ooh, I don't know. I don't know about that one. A conservative call is going to going to lead to seven at the other end. And then then it, uh, all of a sudden, you're, you're shaking your head or wondering, should I have gone for it? And sure enough, that's what happened. And after the first, after the Chiefs scored the first touchdown and then got the defensive stop, I think that was the keys. They get the defensive stop then after the first touchdown. That's when you felt like, yep, comeback's on. And so, I, you know, you didn't know if the Chiefs were going to win it, but you knew it was not going to be a blowout. I knew it was going to come down to at least, at least come down to the end. The Chiefs were not going to just go away at that point. And I think had Bill O'Brien converted there uh, and, and punched it into the end zone, you go up 28 nothing. I mean, who knows? As it turns out, the Chiefs scored 51 unanswered points, but it feels like the game's a different story at that point. And then he gets crushed for the fake punt, which he should not have done. And you're, and I know you're saying, you're saying, well, you can't be hypocritical. You wanted him to go for it on fourth down, but then now you, you don't want him to fake the punt? And I'm never a big fake punt guy. I never have been a very big fake guy because... My motto is, if I'm going to go for it, then I'm going to put my offense on the field and go for it. You know, even if it's in my own territory, I feel better about, you know, Deshaun Watson with the football than my punter or my holder or whoever on my special teams unit I'm relying on to convert the fake punt. And case in point, they had a defensive player trying to run the fake punt and he gets tackled by Sorensen. If that is Carlos Hyde or somebody that's used to the ball in their hands or somebody that is used to putting moves on defenders and breaking tackles, I, I think that makes more sense. But you get you run a fake punt, you have a defensive player, it was Reed, I believe, I think he plays safety for them, who ends up touching the ball and running with it to the right, and he couldn't make Daniel Sorensen miss. And so then you give the Chiefs the ball back in their own territory, and they score another touchdown. You got the crowd back into it at that point. Even though they had scored, the lead was still feeling pretty insurmountable. But when you faked that punt and didn't get it, you opened the floodgates. And it was a combination of things. But but beyond the fourth down call, I crushed the fourth down call more than the punt, the fake punt decision. Because I just thought that, I don't know, there, 100 times out of 100 I would have gone for it in that situation. And I know it's easy to say from your couch, but... I thought that, that that's what Bill O'Brien's fault has been in the past, and I thought that it it, it, it reared its ugly head again. And, and if you pay attention to the game or if you watch the game, he was going to go for it. And that was the craziest thing to me. He's going to go for it. Then they didn't get the play call in soon enough, so they had to call timeout. And then he runs the kick, the kick team on. Well, what the fuck are you doing, man? You were going to go for it 30 seconds ago. What The down and distance didn't change. Get, get in the timeout. Get your play. Get the play you feel best about and call it and run it. I, I don't, I really don't understand how you bring the, I don't understand that philosophy at all. That's the hypocritical part of it. You were going to go for it. So then what? Because you, because you couldn't get the play call in or off fast enough. You have to burn the timeout. Now you're, now all of a sudden all your faith in your offense is gone. So I don't get it. And, and I think that B.O.B., Bob, as they call him, was severely outcoached in this game. And 
If you're a Texans fan, I, I really feel bad for you because you have one of the most exciting young quarterbacks, but you are a ship without a rudder right now because they've already announced that they're not going to hire a new GM. Bob's going to be running that too. And he doesn't have anybody in that building to tell him no right now. And that's the biggest issue. Bob is going to ruin that franchise. And he is already well on his way to doing so. He just basically single-handedly coached them out of the postseason. He has already traded away all their draft capital for Laramie Tunsil, uh, Kenny Stills, and Duke Johnson. Did he trade anybody else? Am I missing somebody there? No, I think that's it. But in addition to that, now he's going to be picking all the players. He has the ultimate power. He is the final authority on everything that happens there. And he doesn't have anybody in there to have a healthy debate with. Why do you think Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch has worked so well together? They have healthy disagreements and they come to a conclusion about what the what the direction of the football team should go in. And when you have multiple minds that can rationally think there and, and come to an agreement or a decision and move in one direction as, as a unified force, you're more likely to have success. It's, it's as simple as that. And when Bob is running the ship, the ship and running the show, who hasn't proven to be a bad coach, but I don't think has really proven to be an elite coach, certainly not worthy of the power he's given. Like, Bill Belichick runs the show in New England. Well, yeah, I think Bill has kind of earned the right to, to be the GM. He's earned the right to pick the players. He's earned the right to make the draft picks. He's earned that. What the hell has Bob done? Nothing. So I, that that is my main criticism in that game. And then you move to the Sunday night game. You have the Green Bay Packers and the Seattle Seahawks. Packers jump on them 21-3. Clearly we're the better team, I think, in this. But as is the case with the Packers, they've done this all season. I tweeted out at the end of the game, this has been the most fun Packers season, but also the most stressful and frustrating Packers season I can remember watching. Because... They, they, they dominate their opponents at times, and then they, they either look like they couldn't beat a JV team or they're you know playing conservative. And I remember, I actually tweeted at one point in the game, they're going to lose. They're going to lose. I, I've seen this movie before, and, I, I, and they were just letting Russell right back into the game. They were playing too conservatively. The defense was done. The defense played great for 30 minutes. At halftime, they were done. And that's what, if you could criticize Petten, for one thing, it has been his ability to hold a lead and continue to stymie defenses or offenses in the second half because he just hasn't done it this year. I mean, they let teams back into games consistently every single time. They were up 34 to nothing or 34 to 3 on the Dallas Cowboys. And and the Cowboys came back within a score of that game. It's unbel- It's unthinkable, the, the leads they've blown and how close they've played it. But here's one thing, as frustrating as it is from a fan perspective and how stressful it is watching the game, they know what they're doing. It, the object of the game is to win. And that's why I think they've gotten a lot of criticism. Oh, worst 13-3 and team ever. Worst two seed ever. Well, there's another, two, there, there's another highly rated seed th- that lost. On, on Wild Card Weekend at home to a team the Packers beat twice, handedly. One time in their own stadium. And that would be the Saints. And I, and I think the Saints are actually better than the Packers, roster-wise on paper. But this notion that the Packers are just so overrated is so utterly ridiculous. They haven't lost a game since they played the 49ers on Sunday Night Football. They haven't lost since then. And while they almost lost to the Lions, and they drive me absolutely insane each and every Sunday, I'll be the first to tell you they're the most frustrating watch in the league right now because they can come out and just dominate their opponents. They'll look so good, and then it comes to crunch time, they'll let their opponents back in it. Or they'll come out totally flat and then have to play their way back into games. They'll look like utterly out of sync, like they didn't practice all week for a half, and then have to come back. And it is... It, it is, it's one of the most frustrating things, and I think that's where the criticisms come from, as I stated, but the thing about it is, at the end of the day, they win the games, and that's where I'm going with this. The, the goal is to have one more point, point than your opponent at the end of the day, and that's something that Matt LaFleur and Mike Pettin have done a really good job of, and, and it, Mike Pettin makes it stressful. He plays this soft-ass prevent defense with the corners eight, nine yards off the line of scrimmage, they're just giving them slants and digs 
and, and hitch routes. They're giving them, they're letting them move the ball in the field goal range every single possession in the second half when they have these big leads. They just want you to consume time to get down the field. That's that's Mike's only goal. And I think, I hate that shit, uh, but I understand that basically every team in the league does it. I, just stick in your base. Just stick in your base. Do, do what shut them down in the first half. I also think it's not all the prevent. I think that uh, when they've come out hot defensively in the first half, the opposing coordinator has gone into the lab at halftime and been able to figure Mike out. And after that happens, it feels like Mike doesn't have a counterpunch. And that is a problem. And if it happens again on Sunday, Kyle's going to wipe the floor with him. And Mike Pettin is, I think, a top 10 defensive coordinator in football. But I think that's one thing, the one weakness of the team and something that they can improve on for next year and something that they'll need to be better at on Sunday because I promise you, even if you shut down Jimmy G and Kyle's offense for a quarter or a half, he's going to go into the halftime break and he's going to figure out what you're doing and find a way to beat it. And then if you're Mike, you have to readjust. And that's what that's what he struggled with this season in addition to playing the prevent when they're up big. But uh, it's less about the prevent for me, the frustration, and more about letting their opponents back into games. And then at times on offense, they just look they look so bad. Uh, Aaron Rodgers and the offense, especially when Devontae went out, they'd go stretches of quarters or half, full halves where they, they, they just looked like they'd never played together before. And that's something that they've gotten better at as the season's gone on. But, I mean, even in the Lions game, it took them about two and a half quarters to wake the F up. And it almost cost them a home field home field bye because they came out so flat. And they've done that at times this season, i.e. the Chargers game. And so obviously you can't afford to do that here. I don't think that's going to be a problem. I think that's more of a problem for next year. But they get up for big games. They got up for the Vikings game. They got up for the Seahawks game. And they're going to get up for this one too. And we'll, we'll, we'll preview the game later. But uh, I, I got some takes on that one too. But a, but a great, great Sunday Sunday of games. I, I guess if you didn't have a dog in the fight in the Packers game, I could see that one might have been a little boring for you to watch. Packers got up 21-3, and although the Seahawks came back and made it interesting, I, I guess maybe if you didn't have a dog in the fight and you weren't as stressed as I was, that you, that wasn't as interesting to you. Certainly not as interesting as the Chiefs scoring 51 unanswered on Bob. I want to talk about the analytics movement. Of which I am a part of. I work part-time for the biggest and the baddest analytics company in football history, Pro Football Focus. I am very proud to work for them. I think they do incredible work. I think they're changing the game. I think they're revolutionizing football and the NFL in particular. And I think the work they do is great. That being said, I think that analytics is part, a significant part, but part of intelligent analysis when it comes to football. And I think that we are jumping the shark, in danger of jumping the shark, when it comes to analytics in the game. Analytics and the spreadsheet is great. It is There's so much valuable data and information held in, in this data that Pro Football Focus has been at the forefront pioneering. And it has, it has given us so much more information than we knew even five or ten years ago. But I think that we've got, we get in danger when we talk about running the football doesn't matter. Oh, well, well, well Kansas City beat the, the Houston Texans. They ran for seven yards and they scored 51 points. Running the football doesn't matter. Playing defense doesn't matter. That's what analytics people, like analytically inclined people, would tell you. People that rely solely on the analytics and the spreadsheet. You go for it in this situation. You don't go for it in this situation. They put it into their Excel spreadsheet, and whatever that says goes. And my issue with that is that's not the end-all, be-all. Because as much as it helps, and I think that there's such valuable information, and analytics is an important part of the game, it is part of the game. It isn't the game. And that is coming from a guy that's as analytically inclined and open-minded as you will find. I mean, I work for pro football focus. It's not like I hate the analytics people. I love it. But, and this leads into my next segment about the Stefanski hire, and we'll talk about that. 
I think that we're we're getting we're we're jumping the shark. We're we're getting a little crazy when we're saying running the football doesn't matter. Of course, running the football matters. Of course, playing defense matters. And the analytics people were getting taken to the woodshed a little bit the last couple weeks with Derrick Henry. But then the the meme was that they they got revived with the Kansas City Chiefs game. And I would agree with the analytics people that running doesn't matter. If you have Patrick Mahomes, and, and that's the caveat, because when Rodgers was in his prime, I actually, I hated running it. I was like, why the hell are we running it? And my least favorite thing that Mike McCarthy would do is we would pass on first down or we'd run, or it'd be second and long. And Mike McCarthy's, Mike McCarthy runs the football on like second and 10, second and nine, second and eight. What, what the fuck are you doing, Mike? To set up third and manageable? Why don't we give Aaron two shots to pick it up instead of one? It just makes so it makes such little sense to run in that situation when we have Aaron. And that's I think the point. It makes yeah, sure, it makes no sense to run. Running doesn't really matter when you have Patty. Why why would I take the ball out of his hands more than a couple times a game if I feel like I have an advantage or to mix it up or to use it as a surprise? I'm gonna use my pass to set up the run when I have Patty. But to say that it doesn't matter, like How'd that work out for Freddie Kitchens passing all the time this year with Baker Mayfield? How does that work for some of the other quarterbacks that aren't as good of pocket passers? Uh, you think that the Ravens shouldn't ever run the football? You think rushing doesn't matter to them? You think rushing doesn't matter to the number one seed in the in the NFC? Uh, now answer this in your head as you're listening to this. Just answer it in your head. Do you think Kyle Shanahan dreams about touchdown passes when he goes to sleep at night? Answer it in your head. No, he doesn't. He dreams about running the football down your fucking throat. That's what he dreams about at night. He had a he had a drive against the Vikings where he had him on the ropes. I think it was six or eight straight runs. Did not take the ball off the line of scrimmage on that drive. Ran it down their throat because they couldn't stop it because they were tougher than the Vikings defensive line and they were finished. Done. Put a fork in him. Finito. And he knew it. And he buried him. Buried him with the run game. So if you think for a second that that shit does not matter and has nothing to do with success and that you can just drop back and pass it every time, yeah, that's great. That's fantastic if you have Drew Brees, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Patty Mahomes. That's great, but most teams don't. And even Tom Brady's success has been largely predicated on defense and run game. And that's my only issue with the analytics. I love analytics and I love all of those guys. But I think that the people... I just think that like anything else, like if you get too stuck in a view and you can't admit where a certain method has has pitfalls or where it comes up short or just simply acknowledging that analytics is a part, a significant, but a part of the analysis, then I think that you're crazy. I, th- I think that you're a fanatic then of the analytics. What is fanatic? It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a crazy person. <laughs> A, a fan is a fanatic. So if you are a fan of the analytics, if if that is what you solely rely on, then then that can be wrong too. And and their retort is always, well, the numbers don't lie. The numbers don't wrong. The, the numbers aren't wrong. The numbers don't lie. The numbers aren't wrong. And yes, that's true. But you will never fully be able to quantify a game played by humans. It just doesn't work that way. It's not a video game. It's not Madden. And so I understand that they play a very significant part, and I, I said all the fluffy stuff at the beginning. It's revolutionizing the game, and I'm very proud to be a part of it. I think the work that PFF does is so important, and the work that other analytics people are doing is so important. And by the way, this is not in no way a shot at PFF or any of the guys there uh, of their opinions. Not at all, because they are, they are fundamentally sound in their beliefs. But the other analytics people that have have relied on it as the end-all, be-all in a game played by humans. It's just, it's reckless. And that's the only point I'm trying to make here. And it leads into a problem that I think the, I think the Browns specifically are doing this. And that's really what prompted me to talk about this today because I want to talk about the Stefanski hire and the new direction that they're taking their team. I teed myself up perfectly. I mean, I'm a fucking pro. What do you expect? Uh, the Stefanski hire by the Browns was not a head-scratcher in terms of the guy, 
But the stuff that came out about it and basically who they have running the franchise now is throwing up all sorts of alarm bells and red flags to me. And Stefanski has been with the Vikings, I believe, for 14 years, 11 or 14 years. And he has climbed his way from the bottom rung up to the top, and now he's going to get a shot to be a head coach. And by all accounts, he seems like a good guy, a good football mind, smart dude, and I, I wish him success. One thing I do think was ridiculous, and I pointed this out on Twitter, and uh, Colby, who listens to the show, good buddy of mine, uh, if you listen to the Sunday Live show, you've heard his name mentioned, because he's always in the comments. He has a little feud going on with Nick <laughs> uh, on the Sunday show. But he, I think, got mad at me and took exception to what I said, and thought that maybe I was, I was coming down on Stefanski or hating on him. And that wasn't the case. But here was here's where I think the, the hiring process was ridiculous. Robert Sala took Stefanski to the woodshed on Sunday. With better players, sure. The Vikings O-line couldn't block, and Kirk Cousins couldn't complete a pass to save his life. Couldn't hit water if he fell out of a boat. But Robert Sala beat him handedly. It was not close. Kicked his ass. And so... For them to interview the like the 20 million guys that they interviewed for the position, and it was so ridiculous, every time they post on Twitter, Browns are set to interview Josh McDaniels today. Browns are set to interview Robert Sala today. Browns are set to interview Mike McCarthy today. And they'd have all the reporters tweet it. Schefter would tweet it out. And then on their personal team account, they would say, they would, they would post a picture of the coach or something like that and be like, we're interviewing this guy today, and then we're interviewing him tomorrow, and we're interviewing this guy next Wednesday. And it was such a PR bullshit move to basically fabricate that they were exhausting all avenues to find the best possible candidate for the job. And it was just, it, say what you want, but it was it's a sham. You knew they were going to hire Kevin Stefanski all along in what's come out. And I didn't follow it. I didn't personally know that they were going to hire Kevin Stefanski all along. But when you do the research and realize that Paul D. Podesta, who's now running the team after they fired their general manager, John Dorsey, after you realize that Paul D. Podesta is running the team and making the hire, he wanted Stefanski the, when they hired Kitchens last offseason. He wrote a, what's been reported, a Hail Mary email to the Flying J. Jimmy Haslam, hey, hire Stefanski, don't hire Freddie Kitchens. And then John or- John Dorsey supposedly strong-armed his way to get the Freddie Kitchens hire approved, which obviously crashed and burned, and ultimately got John Dorsey fired. Uh, the Baker Mayfield pick, we'll wait and see. It didn't help him this year. But ultimately, it was the Freddie Kitchens being a total disaster and dumpster fire that got John Dorsey ousted. So Dee Podesta wanted Stefanski from the start last year. So... Uh, you, oh, you think you think he's gonna fucking hire Kevin Stefanski this go around? It was such a PR, just such a PR move to announce that you're you're bringing in all these guys and interviewing all these guys. Solid didn't have a chance. I mean, that's so clear when they announced the Stefanski hire hours after the Vikings game, and hours after Robert Sala just kicked the living shit out of him. Like they were never looking at Sala. It's been reported, oh, Robert Sala made the choice very hard on them. Bullshit. Bullshit. You can can feed me whatever bullcrap you want. I don't buy it for a second. And neither should you. It's it's the same thing the Giants were doing. Oh, we we wanted the... I I forget the guy's name already. Joe Judge. The the Patriots guy. Well, we we wanted him all along. Matt Rule, yeah, he was a candidate, but he wasn't our guy. I, I don't know what you guys are talking about. That's a that's just a false narrative that the media went and ran with. Again, bullshit. You, you can you you tell me what you want, but I don't buy it for a second. You wanted Rule. You, you were too stiff to pay him, and the Panthers got him. David Tepper, the the new American businessman, paid up and got him. And guess what? He's getting uh, Joe Brady from LSU too. So you don't think that team's making moves and headed in the right direction? Because as long as these guys aren't total idiots, which by all accounts, I mean, they are college guys, so who knows if they'll work in the pros. But again, from all accounts, I haven't heard one negative thing said about them. That's my issue with, with, the, with the hire. And now we'll get into the analytics side of it. Paul D. Podesta has been in the NFL since 2016. He's a baseball guy. And I, I went and looked him up because I wanted to look up what his background is. 
because I have heard him associated with the Browns now since 2016 as this really smart analytics guy. And so, you know, I'm interested, what's this guy all about? Seems like a pretty smart dude. And by all accounts, I think he is a pretty smart dude. He worked with the Dodgers uh, and has worked in, in Major League Baseball at an executive level for a long time and has now come over to the NFL since 2016. And this is where the previous segment leads into this one. I think that they're in huge, huge trouble if what has been reported is true. They're having, Stefanski has to agree to an hour-long weekly meeting with the owner. He has to agree to have an analytics person on the headset during games, which some people were, some people were like, oh, I get that, I get that. And maybe other, t- other NFL teams do it, and I'm unaware of it. And I don't think it's, it's a bad idea to have a guy like that on the headset on your staff but I don't think that it should be like Paul DePodesta gets to put one of his analytics dudes on the headset. That's not really a part of the coaching staff, and he gets to be in the coach's ear or Stefanski's ear, saying, "Hey, you got to go for it here. Hey, you got to go for it here. Hey, you got to punt it here. Hey, you got to pass it here. Hey, you better run it here." Third and two says we get this sixty-seven percent of the time. You better run it, and then you ba- it, it's it's a way of basically putting Paul DePodesta in the analytics department over their shoulder twenty-four-seven. I don't think that's productive at all. So if it's a, if it's a guy that's on uh, Stefanski's staff and the hierarchy is clearly Kevin Stefanski makes the calls and you have him in your ear, hey, this is what the analytics say, up to you, fine. But if it's going to be a pressure thing where, hey, uh, Deep Podesta and all the analytics guys, they think you should go for this here. And if then you don't go for it and don't get it, you have the analytics guy reporting back to Deep Podesta saying, well, he didn't listen to us. <laughs> that is that is a recipe for disaster. Like if you think that they had infighting with Todd Haley and Hugh Jackson, let's they have another thing coming this next season. And again, Paul DiBiase seems like a smart guy. He has been in the NFL for three years. There, there, there is no way he knows anywhere close to the level of football that he needs to know to to make decisions about the team at the level at which he's trying to. He, they, he is he is the the final authority there now, and that's I guess my biggest issue with it and with the analytics is because Paul De Podesta wants to turn the organization into a baseball. He wants to run it like a baseball organization. It's so clear with putting the analytics guy on the headset, with the weekly meetings, with having basically having his eyes over the shoulder and in everything Stefanski does. What has baseball done over the last ten to fifteen years? They have basically reduced managers to lower mid-level management. They don't make any significant decisions because the spreadsheet and the analytics tell you what to do. They tell you how to set the lineup. They tell you who to substitute when. They tell you who to pitch when. They tell you who to pinch hit against a certain pitcher. There are so many numbers and statistics in baseball that managing has been reduced to basically being a bench coach. And any any big-time baseball guy that's into the game nowadays will tell you that. And, the, and Paul DePodesta has very clearly brought that philosophy over from the MLB. And he's trying to implement it in the NFL. And I don't think it's going to work. Baseball is the ultimate statistics game. That's why rotisserie baseball and fantasy sports were invented. Uh, there's a real fun 30 for 30 on that that you should go watch if you haven't already. Uh, I, forget, I forget what it's called. It's about the start of rotisserie baseball. And I still argue against that to a point in baseball... Because at the end of the day, I think your mental toughness, different guys are going to perform differently in d- different situations. Like, And a bat in October is not the same as some throwaway June day game on a Saturday afternoon in you know the middle of the summer against Joe Blow. It's a lot different when the lights are bright and it's on national TV and you're in the postseason. I want my best guys regardless of the splits, right? Not regardless of the splits, but I think that there, there's certainly more of a conversation to be had. But I will concede that the the spreadsheet is much more significant in in baseball and in setting those lineups. Like, the managers don't decide the lineups, really. The, the analytics team and the, and the executives decide the lineups. That's what DiPodesta wants to do. And that's why I just think it's going to blow up in their face if they, if they try to do this. Uh, and, and I'm really interested to see how it works. And, it, and if it does work... I'll be the first to tell you I was wrong, and that Deep Dust is a freaking genius. But 
if what I what is being reported on is true, I, I think they are headed for utter disaster. Especially when you factor in the personality of Baker Mayfield and coming off the down season he's had. Does the spreadsheet account for that? Does the spreadsheet account for Baker Mayfield saying some dumbass shit at the podium after the game? I, I just I don't know how this works. And I hope Kevin Stefanski, I wish him all the all the luck in the world, but I don't know if I would have taken his job if I was him. I, I think the Browns are headed for utter chaos and disaster. I mean, Sashi Brown was the last big-time analytics uh, academic that they brought in, and they, they shit-canned him after about two years. They had had it, and they went with the complete opposite of John Dorsey, and now they flip-flopped back the other way to Dee Podesta, who has been there since 2016, so it's not like they just hired this guy out of the blue, but he's clearly running the team now. And so... It, It'll be interesting, but I'm very skeptical. Okay, final segment of the day. I want to talk about the two games to be played on Championship Sunday. Two tickets are about to be punched to Super Bowl 54. First up, it's the Tennessee Titans at the Kansas City Chiefs. Start time of 3.05 Eastern on CBS. And this is an interesting game. It's a rematch of that uh, infamous playoff game with the Marcus Mariota. I believe it was the fourth down pass that got batted back to him, in which he then ran into the end zone, crossing the pylon, and the Titans would go on to win it and upset the Chiefs at Arrowhead. They're playing at Arrowhead again, and I got to tell you, I'm rolling with the Chiefs in this one. They were my preseason pick to win it all. And I still feel that way. I think that the Chiefs just score points in bunches. The Texans, I said, were I've always I've said this the whole year. I mean, they're a basketball team. Their offense is when they get DeAndre Hopkins and Deshaun Watson going, they're unstoppable, and then they go dead for periods at a time, and then they can score points in bunches. The Chiefs, it feels like they just score points in bunches all the time, and they have a little less basketball feel to them because I mean, it's just very simple. They have a high octane, high powered offense. And it's led by probably the best quarterback going right now in Patrick Mahomes. And if he gets that crowd going into it, uh, I heard somebody describe him. It's a it's a cross-sport reference, but I think it, it applies. He described him as the Steph Curry of the team. You know, when, when Steph Curry, it felt like the Warriors would be out of it or it would be lax days, but Steph Curry starts hitting threes and shimmying all over the place and the crowd gets into it. It felt like you just couldn't stop him. Uh, that's kind of what it felt like when Mahomes started going on a tear. He's pumping up the crowd. He's doing the Game of Thrones, raising the dead, raising the White Walkers to defeat the Texans from behind. It feels like when Patty gets going in that playoff atmosphere at Arrowhead, boy, that place is just going to be rocking and it's going to be intimidating. The question is going to be, the Titans, can, can they play their brand of football or are the Chiefs going to force them out of that? Because you couldn't have two differently, diametrically opposed philosophies. You have the Titans who want to ground control, clock control, run it down your throat and play defense. And you have the Chiefs who don't really give a shit about defense and just want to throw the ball all over the yard. I don't think they had a drive longer than four minutes of all the 51 points they put up. They didn't have a drive that sustained more than four minutes of game time. And so it's really going to come down to who can dictate terms. And I think that Tennessee is, a, is the tougher team, and I think that they'll be able to do that on the, on the ground. Uh, offensively, I think they will be able to. The, the trouble is going to be, well, when you run eight minutes off the clock, and if you end up having to settle for three or then the Chiefs come right back down and score in two minutes, then you have to start all over again. That's that's kind of demoralizing. And so I'll be interested to see how the Titans respond to that. In addition, the Titans are not built to play from behind. If the Titans have to play from behind, they will lose and they will lose big. It is, it's very similar to what happened to the Ravens. They are two teams that want to run the football, play defense, ground control, play from ahead, shorten the game. The Ravens played with a lead all season long. And when they got down early, they now I think that Greg Roman abandoned the run game way too early in that in that in that contest against the Titans. But you saw when they got down, they didn't have the firepower to catch back up. Well, the Titans don't either. They they need the lead or to keep it one possession. 
If they get down by 10, 14 points, and Ryan Tannehill has to start throwing it all over the yard, they're going to lose. Now, Ryan Tannehill has, I think, uh, a decent shot to keep him in it because he actually, I mean, he is a pretty good thrower of the football. That may be blasphemous to say, but he's a better thrower of the football at this point in his career than, than Lamar Jackson is. Will Lamar eventually surpass him? He's already surpassed him in value, but will he surpass him as a pocket passer? I don't know. Maybe. But Ryan Tannehill, for as, as good as Tractor Cito, Derrick Henry has been, uh, they're not winning those games without Ryan. And I know that he, his, the stat line has been bad, but how many times did he make a big throw on third and eight to keep the drive alive? Third and six to keep the drive alive when they couldn't run Tractor Cito. And he moves the chains, keep the clock moving, keep the possession alive. Ryan Tannehill has been outstanding this season. And so if they do get behind, I think that he... He could keep him around. I, I don't. I don't think ultimately he'd have the firepower to catch back up. So ultimately, I think the Texans are going, or the Titans rather, are going to have to dictate terms if they want a shot to win this game. But we saw it in in the first matchup back in Nashville against these two teams. Ryan Tannehill brought him back, brought him back from the dead and beat them. I believe he. Oh, he hit, he hit a long touchdown pass with like. 30 seconds left to win that game in Nashville, I'm pretty sure. It was an exceptional second-half effort by Tannehill. One of the funner noon games of the year, to be quite honest. I mean, I know we, we've had some, had some big-time matchups at noon, but I remember watching that, and that was, that was really fun. So, it, it, the, in the end, it's going to be very interesting to see. Obviously, I think the Chiefs are a little bit, a little bit better. They're more talented. They have the edge at quarterback. I think, it, for as much as I respect... Mike Vrabel and think he is is an excellent coach and going to be one for a very long time. You have to give the coach edge to Andy Reid. So I think they have the edge at the at the two most important coaches in a position. But I mean it might as well be coaching matters in the NFL. It's paramount. But I so I think they have the the edge at the two most important in, important places in the football organization. Now the the Titans are the complete opposite. So uh, it'll just be really interesting to see, uh, again, how this game is played and who ends up having to switch their game plan or get a little uncomfortable doing something that they normally haven't done week in and week out. So then we move to the night game. It is a 6.40 Eastern start on Fox, and it is the one versus the two. You know, for all the gripes we had about the Packers shouldn't be the two seed, the Packers shouldn't be the two seed, the NFC is so competitive. And I was leading the charge for it, banging the drum for the NFC. The NFC is so goddamn good, and the AFC is so top-heavy. Well, we got two versus six in the AFC, and guess who's in, who's left? One and two in the NFC. So uh, I really do think that we got the two best teams in the NFC going at it. The problem for the Packers, I think, and my Packers, I think, at least roster-wise, number one's a heck of a lot better than number two right now. And they should be. They have had way more premium draft picks than the Packers have in recent years, and they just have more players. In addition, they were aggressive at the deadline. They got, got Emmanuel Sanders from the Broncos. Uh, that, that guy doesn't hurt to have in a game like this. Uh, they have Kyle Shanahan, who's really come into his own, as good as Matt LaFleur's done. I mean, the script of these two coaches has to be written still. Two young guys, and, uh, and Kyle Shanahan obviously got the better of Matt the first time they played, but... Uh, I think you'd have to give the edge to uh, Kyle. I mean, what Kyle's been able to do with with the San Francisco 49ers has been exceptional. Uh, their offense and their defense, I mean, they, they do it all. They rush the passer, they hit you, they are physical, and on the offensive end, they run the football, and then they have Jimmy Garoppolo who can start off a series throwing darts like he did in the, in the Vikings game. Thought they were going to come out and run the football. He came out and just passed it, passed it, passed it, passed it. He, he talks a lot about he, he's so he's so smart in the way he goes about running the football. Right? He uses the pass to set up the run. He he likes to run, but he he's not the type of guy like the Titans, like the Vikings, like some of these other run-oriented teams, like the Jaguars. We're going to come out and run it on first down. We're going to come out and run it on second down, or we'd like to run it on third down too. He, he's, he sets up his runs. He puts his run game in a better position to succeed. And I think that's one of the most fascinating things about watching him, how he uses pre-snap motion to, uh, to diagnose 
his op- uh, opponent's uh, weakness in the defense or to get them to move where he has a numbers advantage and then he can use the scheme to uh, break off big runs. I think they had 17 runs of nine yards or more in the Vikings game, which is just exceptional. And this is what I'm worried about for the Packers is the two things that the Packers have struggled with, and and it's both on defense. They have been susceptible to pre-snap motion. So uh, that's the Sean McVay trick that has become real trendy since he's taken over in L.A. They'll pre-snap jet motion a receiver across the formation, and they'll hand it straight ahead to Todd Gurley. Well, Kyle does a lot of that too, and the Packers are susceptible to to pre-snap motion. They have not handled it very well. And the even bigger thing is on play action, their pass rush goes away. When you drop straight back, you get Zadarius Smith, who led the NFL with 90-plus pressures, and Preston Smith, and then you get Kenny Clark up the middle, and you allow that pass rush to come straight at you, they, they get a lot of pressure and a lot of hits on the quarterback. When you neutralize them and slow them down a, a, a touch with play action, they, they, completely, they completely go away. The Packers don't have a single sack off play action yet this season. And, and, the, and the Seahawks found a lot of success off of it. And they used it and exploited the Packers off of that in the second half. So that's something that they're going to have to do much better job of. And, and, and Kyle took, took a pet into the woodshed the first time they met up. And they absolutely kicked the Packers' ass. And I don't think that this game, if the Packers are to win, is going to be won on defense. It is going to have to be number 12, the bad man. If you remember all the way back to when he got drafted, they said, Aaron, are you disappointed that the 49ers didn't draft you? Because he was a Cal kid from the state of California, and it seemed like a perfect marriage that he was going to be drafted to the 49ers. And instead, you know what they did? They took Alex Smith from Utah, and he slid all the way down the draft board to cold Green Bay, Wisconsin. The only team in the NFL that doesn't have an owner. They got millions of them. The only team in the NFL that doesn't play in a true city. They play in a small town. And Aaron Rodgers, the Cali kid, had to go up to the frozen tundra and play at Lambeau. And you know what he said when they asked, are you disappointed that the 49ers didn't take you? He said, not as disappointed as they'll be that they didn't draft me. And this is what this game's all about for him. He has come up short against the 49ers in the past, in the playoffs even. The Packers are 1-2 and two in NFC Championship games under Rodgers. 2010, 2014, 2016. Obviously, they won in 2010. Seahawks game was 2014. Falcons game was 2016. So they're back there for the fourth time. Uh, not quite of the decade, because this is technically occurring in 2020. So that's what this is all about for him. And he's going to have to show it. Because they're not going to win the game on defense. You're not holding the 49ers to 10, 17 points. It's not going to happen. You just have to give that up right now. Mike Pettin's hope has to be to contain them. Because they're finally facing a roster which they're just outmatched. I mean, they are. Personnel-wise, the 49ers have the best roster in the league. And I really don't know if number two is close. Who would even be number two? I'm trying to look at the at the remaining playoff teams. I'd probably You'd probably have to say Baltimore or the Saints have the second best roster in the league. But uh, number one, the 49ers, they have dudes all over the place. And if I were the 49ers, you know what I'd do on defense. If I'm Robert Sala, I'm going to move some of my edge rushers and try and rush them inside. Don't be surprised to see Nick Bosa in a stand-up position as almost a linebacker to rush over the center of the guards. That's where the weakness of the Packers' offensive line is. It has been Billy Turner, and they have the rookie Elgton Jenkins at the guard positions. They have veteran Corey Lindsley at the center, but the bookend tackles are the strength. They, they, we have a, the, the Packers have a better chance to neutralize the edge defenders of the 49ers if they keep them outside because they have Brian Balaga, who, who should be back from the illness, starting at right tackle, and they have Bakhtiari, the best pass-blocking uh, left tackle in football on, on the left side, on, on Rodgers' blind side. So I know Nick is a rookie, but don't be surprised if Sala decides to get a little creative. We saw the Seahawks and Pete Carroll did it a little bit with Jadeveon Clowney, and they moved him inside and rushed him inside. I would not be surprised to see to see the Niners try that with Bosa. He's surely athletic and versatile enough to do it. And the Packers have been doing that with uh, Zadarius Smith, having him rush on the inside lately. So uh, that's what I would look for for the 49ers on defense. On offense, the 49ers are just going to try to do their thing. 
because what they do best is the Packers' weakness, and that's play action and, and pre-stat motion. They use Kyle Juszczyk and formations to get you in uh, personnel groupings that are favorable to them, and they take advantage of you. And I, I suspect that they should be able to do that against Green Bay. My ultimate prediction in this game, you know, I'll save it for Sunday. I, I, I think that this game, and I, I said it felt a little bit like if the Packers were to get by Seattle, which they obviously have now, it felt like this game was going, it reminded, it's reminding me a lot of when the Packers played the Arizona Cardinals a couple of years ago and just got waxed up, up at Lambeau. They had, they had Tyran Matthew, Calais Campbell, they had Carson Palmer, Larry Fitz on offense, and they just destroyed the Packers. Well, then they play them in the playoffs, and I believe this was the divisional round then, and we had to go out and play them in the desert this time. I say we like I'm on the team. The Packers had to go out and play the Arizona Cardinals in the desert, and the hopes were not very high, but the Packers rallied. It's just hard to blow out a team twice in a row. So I think this game is going to be close, and I think that this is one of the most important games of Aaron Rodgers' career to date, and I think that this means a ton to him. And the Seahawks game was vintage Rodgers. I haven't seen him look like that very often this year. He's looked much more the average Aaron than he has the Aaron that we saw in the Seahawks game. So I I expect him to play very well, and I think that this is going to be a really, really tight game. I I expect it to be be a a fun one. One to remember. I think that this will be a nice capper to Championship Sunday. Uh, I I don't know if they'll win, and I'm not going to reveal my pick here. But I do think it's going to be close. So uh, with that said, we'll see you guys on Sunday. Go Pack Go. Can't wait for Championship Sunday. The Green Bay Packers, my favorite NFL team, are 60 minutes away from going to the Super Bowl. And they got to get through one of the best teams in the NFL to do it. I mean, you can't ask for anything more than what we're about to see on Sunday, even if your team's out of it. The best of the best going at it. you got Patrick Mahomes. you got Aaron Rodgers. you got the best young roster with the best young coach in football in the 49ers and the Cinderella Titans. It's got it all, and I just cannot wait. We have to savor every last snap of this, guys, because before we know it, we're going to be talking free agents and drafts. So that'll do it for the show today. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to uh, out of your day to hang out with me and shoot the shit, talk some football. We'll see you on Sunday. And go Pack Go!